It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Hi, this is Nathan. I found that while I love technology and all that technology allows us to do with discipleship, that there is something about in-person discipleship where something is caught that's not taught, that it's being around like-hearted and like-minded fellow believers in Christ, where we are all pursuing him together, that somehow stirs the soul in a very special way that is very different than watching an online sermon or, or going through some sort of online training. Now, while I love the fact that we have online training, personally, I have just really love the interaction that we get to have with students when they're on campus. Well, with that being said, I want to personally invite you to join us this fall for our five-week semester. After all this crazy COVID stuff, we get to have students back on campus. And I'm so excited about the discipleship program where we're going to be walking through the truths of God's word in person. So if you have a heart to know more of God's word, to be trained and discipled in practical Christianity that actually works, well, I would encourage you to consider joining us this fall, starting September 5th, for our five-week semester. If you'd like more information about that five-week training program or any of our other trainings, you can visit ellersley.com forward slash daily for more information. Now, as we transition into today's Daily Thunder, we're going to be looking at Joshua chapter 10 and looking at the profound reality that all things are beneath the feet of Jesus Christ. Uh, well, if you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, no, we're not going back to the Ephesians study, <laughs> though that would be really fun. Uh, what I want to do is I want to, again, we've been walking through seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. And what I'd like to do is I want to set up the scene of what we're going to be looking at in the Old Testament. Uh, so I want to give you the New Testament concept, <clears throat> and then I want us to take that concept, go back into the Old Testament, and actually see where it's uh, highlighted or demonstrated. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, uh, I, love the, I love what Paul's doing here in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 19, uh, down through the end of the chapter. Uh, in verse 19, let me just read this. <clears throat> He's in the middle of his prayer. And he says, I pray that you would know what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. And if you've been walking through the Ephesians study with us, uh, we were looking at this idea of power and the fact that what God is, or what Paul is saying here is God's power is indescribable. In fact, in that passage in verse 19, Paul uses four different Greek words for the word power. In other words, it's like he's, he's going into the Greek language, pulling all the different words he can find to describe the overwhelming power of God and says, do you know who our God is? Our God has the power. Our God has the authority. He has the dominion. He has the resource. He has the ability. And all that's contained there in verse 19. And then almost as an outflow of that, he begins to give several examples of this overwhelming power of God. Uh, one of those is the life of Jesus, which is verse 20 down through the end of the chapter. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 1 through 10, is the uh, illustration or the example of us, that we are a picture of the, of the power of God, the fact that God has worked in us. Uh, verse 11 down to the end of the chapter is the picture of the power of God in the church and the fact that he has reconciled the church together and now there's no longer Jewish Christian and Gentile Christian, there's just Christian, which is a cool concept and kind of steps on all of our denominational toes. But nonetheless, uh, as you look at that first 
illustration or that first example uh, in verses 20 down to verse 23, he's talking about the life of Jesus and the fact that the power of the triune God was, being, it was working in the life of Jesus. <clears throat> Let me just read this. This is what it says. Again, he's talking about this working of the mighty power. Verse 20, which he performed in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and made him head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all things in all ways. What an incredible passage. Uh, here's the idea. Here's Jesus. <clears throat> He's deader than a doornail. Uh, he is, it's not that he was just dead. He's dead. He's dead, dead. And I think sometimes in the, in the church, uh, we forget that he was dead. You know, we, we, we sing it and we, we say it all the time, but we forget he was actually literally dead. Like go down to the morgue, pull out the body dead. So what, what did the father do? Oh, God reached his hand into the physical deadness of Jesus and yanked Jesus from physical death and brought him into physical life, which is amazing. That's so cool. I mean, that is a demonstration of the power of God. And if that wasn't great enough, then he took Jesus, who's now alive, and seated him in the right hand of the Father in the heavenly places. And that whole right hand idea is it's a position of authority and power and might, but it's also a position of relationship and intimacy. Uh, It goes back to the idea of, uh, if you ever go to a wedding, uh, the groom's side is always on this side, and the bride's side is always on this side. Haven't you ever wondered why? Isn't that a crazy thought? It's so that—this is so cool— well, when he says, I do, and she says, I do, and, you know, because that, that part's important, right? And then they, they turn, the groom extends his right arm to his bride. Then any thought? And she takes her side of weakness, her left, and leans her weakness upon the strength of her groom. I think that's beautiful. So here's this whole idea that here's Jesus at the right hand of the Father, it's a place of, again, it's, it is power, it is authority. It has this idea of, you know, the king holds the scepter with his right hand. Uh, most, most people, right, they're, they're going to hold a sword in the right hand. So it's a position of power and authority, but it's also, again, relationship and intimacy and all that kind of stuff is right there at the right hand. Now, <clears throat> in that place, uh, verse 21, it says that Jesus is seated far above all principality, power, might, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. That Jesus has been given this position, this authority, that is above all things. That no one can trump Jesus. No, no one can go above Jesus. He is overall. Oh, that's awesome. Then, that wasn't good enough, verse 22 says, And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and made him head over all things to the church, which is his body. Do you recognize that because Jesus is in this position of authority and power and might, all things have been placed underneath his feet, which means he now has control and dominion and authority over all things. Uh, if you ever go to the old museums, and uh, a lot of times you'll see a picture of like a pharaoh or a, uh, an emperor or something like that, where their foot is on, on top of the enemies, right? A statue or a painting, right? And so that you have all the little enemies painted small down on the, on the ground, and then their foot is on top of them. <clears throat> that whole symbolism of the feet is so intriguing to me because the whole, the whole idea is that whatever comes under your feet comes under your authority, that, that, they are, that you are standing on top of them in, in one sense. Isn't it neat to think that all things are beneath the feet of Jesus? 
that there's not one single thing that you can name that can trump Jesus. In fact, it's a, it's a weird study, but if you ever wanted to do an interesting study of the feet of Jesus, do you realize that the feet of Jesus show up all over the place in the Gospels? Which is kind of creepy, <laughs> truth be told. <clears throat> Let me just give you a couple of these. Uh, and there are certain things that are associated with his feet. For example, in Luke 10.39, Jesus' feet become symbolic or a place where you listen and are taught. Uh, speaking about Mary and Martha, it says that Martha had a sister called Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. That somehow his feet are, are being associated with this idea of, of this, I'm coming in this humble position and I'm listening and, I, and I'm hearing and I'm, I'm being taught. Uh, his feet are a place of petition. In Mark 7.25 it says, For a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit heard about him, and she came and fell at his feet and began to make this petition. Jesus, you, you can set my, my daughter free. So his feet are a place of petition. <clears throat> his feet are, a, interestingly, a, symbolic of a place of healing. Uh, Matthew 15.30. It says, And the great multitudes came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the mute, the maimed, and many others, and they were laid down at Jesus' feet, and he healed them. So his feet then are, are they, they take on this position or this authority idea. Uh, his feet are a place of peace and deliverance. In Luke 8, 35, <clears throat> uh, Jesus had just cast out all these demons from, from the man. And it says that, that he was sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. That now that he had been delivered from all these demons, that whole legion story, now that he's been delivered of all these demons, he's sitting at the feet of Jesus, and now it's a place of peace and deliverance. Uh, his feet are a place of thanksgiving. In Luke 17, it says that she fell down on, uh, she fell down on, oh, sorry, he, forgive me, fell down on his face and at Jesus' feet, giving Jesus thanks. And he was a Samaritan, speaking of the, uh, the man he healed. And it's also, his feet are a place of worship and reverence. In Matthew 28, 9, uh, this is the, uh, right before the Great Commission scene, it says that, And he went to tell his disciples, Behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held him by his feet and worshipped him. That interesting? And it's also a place of remembrance. Uh, Luke 24, 39 says, Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see me, for, I, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones like you see that I have. So isn't it interesting that <clears throat> here are the feet of Jesus, and we know that <clears throat> he's in this position of authority and power and might and dominion. He's, he's over all things. And all things have been placed underneath his feet. And his feet have, biblically, are symbolic of something. It's authority. It's rest. It's this peace. It's this idea of deliverance. It's, it's this all that's contained. So when you look at this Ephesians passage, I find it interesting. Then in verse 22, it says again that here is God, and one of the demonstrations of his power in the life of Jesus is he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him this position to be head over all things to the church. <clears throat> that idea, put, putting all things underneath the feet of, of Jesus, shows up throughout Scripture. Let me just give you a couple of these. These are so neat. In Psalm 8, 6, it says, now this is the psalmist talking about the future Messiah. But the psalmist says, you have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And it's interesting, by the way, that the word things here in Psalm 8, 6, and in our passage, 
uh, that he put all things in subjection under his feet. The word things actually is not in the Greek, so you can actually cross that out if you wanted to. Uh, we put it in there for clarity, but it actually, all it says is, and he put all in subjection under his feet, which is even stronger in my mind. <clears throat> Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Do you realize what the enemies of, of God are? or what's taking place in the enemies of God, the enemies of God are literally pressed under, and they're now become the footstool of Jesus. Now, I don't know if you ever sat, you know, on those cool lounge chairs, you know, right? But you're sitting in the chair, and you're leaning back, and you put your foot up on a, on a footstool. And never once in my entire life have I had my foot on a footstool, and I thought, oh, I hope the footstool doesn't rebel and throw my feet off. So you don't have those thoughts. Why? Because it's a footstool. Do you recognize that Jesus is not concerned or intimidated by your enemies? He, he's, he's, not, he's not fearful of, of, of the enemies that are coming against him. Why? They, they are beneath his feet, and he is just resting his feet upon them. He is not worried that, oh no, maybe they're going to usurp this time. He just, he rests his feet upon them. I love that idea. Uh, in Hebrews 2, verse 7 and 8, again, you have put all things in subjection under his feet. And interestingly, as you, as you follow this feet thing through all the scripture, and just for the sake of time, I'll just give these to you really quick and you can look these up. But it's interesting that this idea of authority under the feet or this feet concept, it's that he has authority in every single place. And you could read like Deuteronomy eleven twenty four through 25, where there's this idea that hey, every place where your foot trods, I'm going to give it to you. It's that kind of an idea. Uh, again, there's this idea of all things. So in all places and all things, right, that Ephesians 1, the Psalm passage uh, and then, interestingly, this whole idea of feet is over all the power of the enemy. So, for example, Psalm 91.13 says, You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra, the young lion and the serpent you shall trample underfoot. That here is these symbols of the enemy. The enemy has no authority or power over the feet of Jesus. Uh, Luke 10.19, Behold, I will give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. So when you begin to look at this idea that here are the feet of Jesus, and the feet of Jesus has all authority, all power, all dominion, all, 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 over all things, in all places, at all times, all. Now that alone is awesome. But again, we're looking at Jesus in the Old Testament. If you take that whole concept and come back into Joshua chapter 10, which I'd love for you to turn to, uh, you begin to see this, uh, in a phenomenal just picture. <clears throat> in Joshua chapter 10, of course, the Israelites have left Egypt uh, in the Exodus scene. They've wandered the wilderness now for 40 years. They've entered into the promised land in the beginning of, uh, the beginning of Joshua. <clears throat> and, and now here they are. They're now conquering the kingdoms. So, of course, they dealt with Jericho. Then they dealt with Ai. And, and they're, they're walking through and they're dealing with all these, with all these kingdoms. And as, as you look at chapter 10... <clears throat> chapter 10 is that famous scene where uh, here they are in, this, in the middle of this big battle. There's five kings in, in the land of Israel that have come against Israel, and they are fighting Israel. And uh, hey, Israel was doing fairly well, but oh, it's getting to be sundown. And again, in this culture, uh, you don't fight in the dark because <laughs> you might hurt your own person, you know, one of, one, someone from your own, your own side. And so typically, and I don't know how this would practically work, but you know, if you're like fighting, it's like getting dusk, you know, it's like, all right, Tomorrow, dawn, right back here at this time. You know, I don't know how that works. But nonetheless, they would, they would break for the evenings. 
Well, the, the battle was going so well for the Israelites that Joshua said, man, if we could just have a few more hours, we could just finish this thing. And so Joshua prays that, God, I don't know how you could do this, but hey, could you just give us some light and keep the sun in its position? And in an incredible miracle, and I don't know how this even works, because when you start thinking this from like physics and the science side of things, which is not my, that's not my realm. But when you begin to think through that, the fact that the sun stood still is mind-boggling. Because if the sun stood still, what does that mean? The earth quit rotating? <laughs> that doesn't work, you know, because then you have gravity issues. And so however this happened, we have no idea. <clears throat> but nonetheless, the sun stood still for an entire day, which is an incredible miracle. Uh, so here they are, they're pressing the battle thing. And as you get into Joshua 10, verse 16, <clears throat> uh, look at what it says. It says, these five kings, so again, they're, they're fighting these five kingdoms. These five kings fled and hid themselves in the cave at Mach, uh, Machpelah. So here are these five kings, and they're like, all right, we're in trouble. <laughs> the sun's standing still. You know, we're, we're, losing, we're losing the advantage. So the five kings hide themselves in this cave. And so the... Uh, the Israelites, you know, they guard the cave. They come up to Joshua and say, hey, what should we do with these five kings? And Joshua says, well, here, here's, here's the plan. Why don't you put some rocks and barrier this cave, and we'll come and deal with the kings later. We'll finish, we'll finish the troops, and then we'll come and we'll deal with, deal with the kings. And so that's what happens. They go and they, they get rid of the rest of the armies. They, they deal with all these issues. <clears throat> and in verse 22, they're coming back and dealing with these five kings. These are the five kings of the enemies of Israel. Now, it's really important to mention, this is, oh, this is so cool. The name Joshua, that word Joshua, is the exact same name as Jesus. Which is just, that, that to me alone is mind-boggling. If you, if you think about even just this parallel, we'll talk about this in a future study. But when you, when you look at the fact that Moses is bringing the people out of, uh, out of Egypt into the wilderness, right? Moses throughout, throughout Scripture is a symbol of the law. That, that he is a picture of the law. Isn't it interesting that the law cannot bring you into the promised land? It is actually insufficient to bring you in. It can lead you and point you toward the promised land, but it cannot get you in the promised land. You need someone greater. Who is that? Joshua, Jesus. And that's exactly what you see in the book of Romans where Paul says, it's not that the law is bad, the law is great, but the law can't save you. The law is a schoolmaster. It points us to the one who can save which is Jesus, which interestingly, again, is the same name as Joshua, which means <clears throat> God brings salvation or God saves, which is what Joshua or the name Jesus means. So here's Joshua, right? He's the better man. He's looking at this cave where the, his enemies are at. <clears throat> now look at, look at this. This is verse 22. Joshua said, <clears throat> open the mouth of the cave and bring out to me those five kings from the cave. They did this, and they brought out those five kings from the cave, the kings of Jerusalem, Hebron, Jarmuth, Lachish, and Eglon. And when they brought out those five kings to Joshua, he called out to all the men of Israel and the army commanders, come, 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 come here and place your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near and placed their feet, isn't this interesting? They placed their feet on their necks. Then Joshua said to them, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, be strong and courageous, for this is what the Lord will do to all your enemies whom you fight. After that, Joshua struck them down and killed them and hung them on five trees, and they were hanging on the trees until evening. And at sundown, Joshua commanded 
the men to take them down from the trees and throw them into the cave in which they, were hid, in which they had hidden themselves. And over the mouth of that cave he placed large stones which remain to this day. Now, I don't know if you see it, but there is an incredible picture of the gospel in that passage. Now Joshua grabs these five kings and they come out and they, they lay them down. And Joshua, who has the authority, he's won the victory, he is the triumphant one. Isn't it interesting that he grabs the commanders of his army and says, come here, come here, come here. You guys put your feet on their necks as a sign of authority and power and dominion. <clears throat> Which is what happens in verse 24. And then, as their feet are on the necks of the enemies, Joshua looks at the army and he says, Do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. By the way, this is that phrase that keeps repeating itself all through Scripture, uh, which is like the battle cry of Israel. It's that rock kasak idea. In fact, Joshua chapter 1, it's, it's repeated several times. But supposedly, even to this day, it's still the national battle cry of the Israelites. The be strong and courageous, do not be afraid or dismayed. But listen to this. Joshua says, this is what God will do to all your enemies whom you fight. Well, what is God going to do to all your enemies? He's going to place them under your feet. And so he's using this as a picture of saying, hey, look, God is triumphant. Now, this is so odd to me. I mean, just brilliant. Uh, verse 26. After that, Joshua struck these five kings down and killed them and hung them on five trees. Isn't that interesting? And they were hanging on the trees until evening. And then they were taken down off the trees and thrown into a cave. Doesn't that sound like something to you? Now you could say, well, yeah, but the, these are the enemies. So how does that even parallel to Jesus on the cross? I know, but think about this. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, do you realize that in, in, in essence, what was happening is on the backside of the cross, the enemy was being crucified. All of his power was being stripped. All of his authority was being diminished. All, death and hell was being conquered. Why? Because of, of the cross of Christ. But there's this foreshadow, and we understand this wasn't crucifixion, right? But hey, it was cursed if you were hung on a tree, which is why this whole cross thing was so significant. I find it interesting, though. Here is Joshua. He takes the five kings, and he hangs them on five trees <clears throat> as almost a sign of the curse. Hey, this is what happens. And as you're looking at these trees, isn't it interesting? At, this sun, at sundown, they take them down and throw them into the cave, just as Jesus at sundown was taken and thrown into a cave. Not thrown, but you know, put into a cave. The only difference being is Jesus came out of that cave, where in this case, the enemies stayed there forever. I think it's a beautiful picture of the gospel that here is our Jesus. He has conquered. He has placed his foot upon the necks of all of his enemies, which is that whole Ephesians 1 passage. But isn't it interesting that here in Joshua, Joshua invited the commanders to participate with their feet on the necks of the kings. Uh, if you flip back to the Ephesians passage, sorry to make you go back and forth here, but in Ephesians chapter 2, again, the second illustration of the power of God is your life. And listen to this. <clears throat> We're almost here in our, in our Ephesians study. But in Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 4, he says, But God, who was rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up and seated us together in the heavenly places 
in Christ Jesus. Do you know what has happened in our lives in Christ? So just as Jesus was dead physically, we were dead spiritually. And just as the Father reached his hand into the physical deadness of Jesus, he has reached his hand into our spiritual deadness. And just as he was raised from physical death unto physical life, so we were raised from spiritual death unto spiritual life. And then just as he was taken and elevated physically into the heavenly realms and seated physically at the right hand of the Father, a power, power, and authority, and might, and dominion, Paul says, you know what happened with you spiritually? You have been placed in Jesus in that position. Now ponder this. I am in Christ at the right hand of the Father, spiritually. So he is there physically, I'm here physically. But spiritually, I am there, and his spirit is now here in me. It's just a really cool exchange. So you begin to recognize that as long as I'm in Jesus in the heavenly realms, if all things come beneath his feet, well, then all things come beneath my feet. Now, I don't have the authority. I understand that. I don't have the might. I totally understand that. I don't have the power. Sure. But as long as I remain in Jesus and my position is in him and all things come beneath his feet, well, then all things come beneath my feet. And I can actually rest. If his feet are upon the necks of his enemies, hey, if his feet are, you know, are using the enemies as a footstool, then what's taking place in my life? The exact same thing. As long as I remain in Jesus. So I cannot remove myself from Jesus and expect that I'm going to have any authority. Because that, hey, that doesn't happen. But as long as I remain in Jesus, which is what your position is supposed to be, as long as you remain in Jesus, then the enemy actually has no legal authority in your life. The enemy cannot touch you. That is awesome. And just as the picture in Joshua, our Joshua has brought us, come here, come here, come here. Put your neck, or put your feet on the necks of these kings. So it doesn't matter what your enemy is. doesn't matter what thing is besieging your life. doesn't matter the temptation. doesn't matter the circumstance. Do you realize that Jesus has conquered and defeated that enemy and his foe and now has invited us, come here, come here, come here, put your feet upon the necks of that enemy. That is awesome. Now, <clears throat> some, some of you listening are going to be saying, well, sure, but that doesn't seem to be proving true in my life. Because it seems like the enemy is just ransacking my life over and over. I know that. <laughs> I do understand that. But let me just read you this passage in Romans chapter 6. <clears throat> this is so significant. Uh, and we, we talk about this over and over and over around here. <clears throat> in Romans chapter 6, uh, we're going back to this idea of reckoning. But listen to what he says. In, in verse, uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says, Likewise, Consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, verse 12, do not let sin reign. It's that, it's that word for kingly authority. Do not let sin have kingly authority in your mortal body, that you should obey it in, it, obey it in its lusts. And then he says in verse 13, do not yield your members, which is that word for your life, your mind, your body, your, your whatever, right? Your, your, your entirety. Do not yield your members to sin as an instrument of unrighteousness, but yield yourself to God as those who are alive from the dead and your bodies to God as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law but under grace. Now, as you begin to look at that passage, what, what Paul is really trying to say here is sin has no, if you are in Jesus, sin has no authority in your life. It's like he's become your force field. 
Uh, the Old Testament talks about that he's your fortress. He's your buttress. He, he's your horn of salvation. That there is like this force field around you and sin cannot touch you legally. Well, then how do I keep falling into sin? <gasps> you yield. See, sin has no authority in your life. But, hey, sin's out there. And, of course, you know, it has, it's blurring loud music. It has smoke and mirrors, right? It looks like there's a dance party going on, right? There's, there's all this woo and wow happening. And the moment that I turn my gaze from Jesus and I put it upon the temptation or the sin, what's going to happen is I start to I tie my own noose. I put it around my neck, and I hand that noose, that, that chain, or, or if you want to use the bull ring, right? I, put, I put this ring in my nose. I, I put a rope around it, and I hand that rope over to sin, and I say, sin, do what you want with me. And I yield, which is this idea, hey, that I, I present, that I turn over. I, 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 I hand over my life to sin. So what does sin do? Oh, it marches me out and does what it wants with me. In fact, he says in verse 13 that if you yield your members to sin, you become an instrument of unrighteousness. That word there for instrument actually means a weapon of warfare. Uh, it's like that picture of a claymore sword, right? It's like, you know, six feet tall. And, and what, what's happening here is, hey, if, if I take my life and I yield it, I hand it over to sin. Sin is going to grab me like a sword, march me out into my world, and just produce unrighteousness. But, Paul says, if you would take your life and you would hand your life over to God, that you would yield yourself to him, then God is going to take you as a weapon of warfare, warfare this, this battle sword. He's going to march you out into your world and just produce righteousness. Isn't it interesting? You don't get a choice of whether or not you're uh, an, an instrument of, of warfare, a, a weapon of warfare. You are a weapon of warfare. Hey, you don't have an, uh, you don't have an option of whether or not you're going to yield. You will yield. The question is, who are you going to yield to? Are you going to yield yourself over to sin or are you going to yield yourself over to Jesus? But hey, as long as I remain in Jesus, all things have been placed underneath his feet, which means I actually can walk in victory and triumph. As long as I remain in Jesus and keep my focus on Jesus and quit tying that noose around my neck and handing it over to sin. But sin has no authority or power over us, is what verse 14 says. That is good news. That is phenomenal news in my mind. So get this idea. Paul says, do you realize that our Jesus is in this position of authority and power and might and all things have been, been placed underneath his authority, underneath his feet? And I am in Jesus, which means just like Joshua says, come here, come here, come here. Put your feet upon the necks of the enemies. Jesus is looking at us saying, I, I want to share my victory with you. I want to share the triumph with you. So, hey, come here. Why don't you put your feet upon the necks of your enemies? So, hey, whether it be greed or pride or lust or whatever it may be in your life, do you realize that it is not to control you? It is to come under the authority of Jesus. And if I would just consistently submit myself to him, I would begin to realize that, wow, I can live in victory. I can walk in triumph. I can, in fact, live out the life that God is calling me to live. And that's beautifully demonstrated in that book of Joshua. That, hey, that on the, on the cross, just as Jesus was dying upon the cross, our enemy was being crucified on the backside of that thing. And, hey, just as Jesus was thrown into a cave, so too our enemy was thrown into the cave. But our Jesus came out of the cave because he lives. That is, that is good news. And it's one of my favorite shadows of Jesus in the Old Testament. Of course, all these are my favorites, but <laughs> I think that's amazing. Well, let's pray. Lord.
I thank you that you are the triumphant one. I thank you that you are the, you are the one that has brought the victory, that you are the one that is the victory. And Lord, thank you for letting me participate in your victory. That just, just as Joshua invited his commanders to put their feet upon the necks of the enemy, so too you have invited me in you to put my feet upon the necks of, upon the necks of my enemies. Lord, let me not remove from my position in you. Lord, I recognize that I have no position, no authority, no might outside of you. Hey, the only way that I can deal with sin in my life, the only, the only way I can have triumph over temptation is when I live smack dab in the middle of who you are and that I must yield myself completely, continually to you. So Lord, would you use me as a weapon of warfare in this world and bring about righteousness? Could you somehow use me in this culture, in this day and age, as a weapon of warfare that declares who you are and declares the, the richness of your truth and declares the gospel. And, and Lord, I pray that this world would be just overwhelmed by righteousness because we as believers have yielded ourselves unto you. Lord, thank you for the cross. and Thank you for your life. We just give you the praise and the glory in your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellerslie.com. Thanks for listening.